Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to the award-winning Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham, and this time I'm in Houston, where I get to say, Houston, we have a podcast. Or I would, but as Gareth Jones pointed out on Twitter and on Facebook clearly quite worked up about it, Jim Lovell in Apollo 13 actually says, Houston, we've had a problem, which doesn't work quite so well. Hey, uh, Houston, we've had a problem here. Can say again, please? Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Glad we've cleared that up. Well, in December, it'll be 40 years since Apollo 17 commander Gene Cernan left the last footprint on the moon. And that's why I'm in Houston. Over the next couple of podcasts, we'll be commemorating those events and looking ahead to future lunar missions. Also this time, another space race over who will launch the first mobile phone into orbit. I'll be talking later to the PhoneSat team. Space is more accessible. It's not as expensive. More and more people are, are participating in it, and I think that's all good. I'm in the Houston Space Center, the Space Museum across the road from NASA's Mission Control, and I'm standing beside the Apollo 17 capsule. It's the pride of place, really, in one of the galleries here, a darkened gallery. It's in the center. It's conical shape, spotlit with the door open, and you can see inside to the astronaut couches and, and all the controls. And with me is Lee Norbraton, who worked on the Apollo program and is now a volunteer here. I mean, this capsule, quite a few miles on the clock. Very much so. The moon is 240,000 miles away. The path that you take to get there isn't exactly a straight path. Uh, on Apollo 17, it, uh, it stayed in orbit for four days before returning. And so we put, uh, you know, well over a half million miles on this capsule. It doesn't show to be much the worse for wear. Now, you know all about this because you worked on the team that helped plot all these trajectories, so from the Earth, round the Moon, and, and back to the Earth. Yes, primarily back to Earth, and of course we wanted to be sure that the astronauts uh, returned safely. Uh, uh, I did work on the maneuver called TEI, or Trans-Earth Injection. That's the maneuver that got the astronauts out of lunar orbit and back on a path to Earth, and worked on the uh, precise location of the splashdown point uh, back on Earth when the astronauts would then be returned. And you did this pretty much straight out of college. You were recruited by NASA and, and went into this, what, really intense working environment. Uh, well, very much so. And, uh, you know, as I entered my last year of college and began to interview, uh, I had 
many job offers, uh, most of which paid a lot more than coming to work for NASA. But this was the place to be because the challenge had already been issued by President Kennedy that said we we're going to, to take astronauts uh, to the moon and bring them back safely by the end of the decade of the 1960s. This was the place to be. And when you inter interviewed uh, with the people who were already working here, you could sense the excitement of being a part of that great adventure. And we mentioned at the beginning Apollo 13. That was one of the missions that you worked on, the mission that went badly wrong. Or it, badly right in the end, I suppose. Uh, yes, it, it's, it's either a great success or a great failure, depending on uh, whether you look at glasses half full or glasses half empty. Uh, there was an explosion within the, the service module. That's the module that provides the life support and the propulsion uh, and the electrical power for the command module. 56 hours into flight, about two-thirds of the way to the moon. Uh, and from that point, we had to begin to determine uh, what was the quickest way to return because the lunar module was going to have to be used as a lifeboat. The lunar module was only sized to support two astronauts for two to three days, and now we're going to have to take three astronauts in a period of a four-day return and bring them back safely. So we have to uh, manage the return trajectory to return as quickly as possible and then manage all of the consumables, the oxygen, the water, uh, the electrical power on board to make sure that we can make that return safely, which and, we did. And how did you work out whether to go, which it did, it went round the moon and back again, rather than just sort of turn round and come straight back to Earth, which would seem the obvious thing to do? Uh, it would be the obvious thing to do, except that if you've got a forward momentum... Moving in the direction of the moon, it takes a lot of energy to reverse that and to return directly to Earth. The natural uh, path of the vehicle was going to be, to, if nothing was done to put it into lunar orbit, was going to be to pass behind the moon and return back generally in the direction of Earth. There was one small maneuver that was required to be sure that we came back to Earth that was performed about five hours after the explosion. And then after we passed by the back of the moon, two hours passed so that the vehicle would be in full view and, and in full communication with the Earth, a bigger burn that would accelerate the return by nine hours. And with the Earth, you know, still three days away, uh, its rotation is going to dictate where you land. So the original landing would have been in the Indian Ocean. By saving the nine hours, the Earth kind of unrotated <laughs> Uh, you know, that number of degrees, and we ended up back at our original planned uh, landing spot in the Pacific Ocean uh, three days later. What was your day like when that message came through, Houston, we've had a problem? Well, I was working uh, as a return-to-Earth expert in the control center, supporting the, uh, the flight dynamics officer. Uh, it but I was, it was off my shift when that happened. Uh, so I got the call at home uh, on that uh, evening. Uh, this would have been uh, April the 12th uh, of 1970, about uh, 9 o'clock, between 9 and 10 in the evening. You must come back. We have allocated an entire one of the IBM 360's computers to simply allowing you to compute, um, me and a few others, uh, you know, the return trajectories and to, and to plot the best path back. So that was, uh, you know, from that point, it became, in effect, a 24-hour job to be sure that we got astronauts back safely. 
No, I mean, that's just one day in, I mean, this phenomenal period with, with Apollo of, of intensity with this, this mission in mind. What was that like when it, when it stopped or looked like it was going to stop? So land on the moon with Apollo 11. And then as far as certainly commentators are concerned at the time, it seemed to sort of fizzle out. Well, there, I guess, is a natural inclination within just the human race to say once we've seen something, we don't need to see it again and again. Uh, there were originally planned to be 10 lunar landing missions. Uh, Apollo 13, of course, with the accident, uh, never resulted in a landing. Six missions did. Uh, the last three of the Apollo missions were actually canceled. Uh, and all of it was due to budgetary constraints. Uh, the nation is ending the Vietnam War. There's a concern about, you know, uh, providing more money away from military programs, more towards social problems. And, and NASA was kind of viewed in the political sense as being more on the technology or the military side. Uh, and its budget uh, fell dramatically. And many of the people who worked on the Apollo program uh, had to find other means of employment. And there, were no, there was not much employment to be found in equivalent work in defense industries and things like that. And so that was a that was a very uh, trying time. Many of the many of the NASA folks were uh, were laid off at that time. It's unusual for a federal government to lay off its people, but that happened following Apollo. And it took the uh, the build up to the uh, space shuttle program, which first flew in orbit in 1981, to reverse that trend. What did we miss out on of not having Apollo 18 and, and 19 and 20? Um, I suppose it would be argumentative that, that we had learned about as much as we were going to learn uh, from the moon. Uh, there is simply some level of inspiration that, that failed to be maintained uh, during that time. And the idea that we were stepping away from this uh, great capability, this, this uh, great adventure, greatest engineering achievement of all time, uh, I think took a lot of the wind out of the sails in our uh, universities in terms of, of people wishing to be a part of that kind of program. And, and so you could actually plot the decline of people going into college to study aerospace or aeronautical or mechanical engineering as a result of the end of the program. And when you, when you look back on it 40 years on, is there a, a sense of, you know, what did Apollo ever do for us? Well, uh, there's a couple of answers to that. You know, and the first is that there has never been a true appreciation of the things that we have in our daily lives as human beings simply as a result of the space program. So we can talk endlessly about the kinds of things that the space program helped to enable. You know, things as, as grand as a global positioning system down to things as simple as improvements in baby food formula because we needed to provide some high protein capability for astronauts spending a long time in space. The list is endless. Some 30,000 different applications that are there. But if you set all of that aside, simply the inspiration that was provided by the Apollo program, the idea that the human race was capable of doing this grand thing and moving to another celestial body other than Earth itself, and to be able to see the image of Earth from a distance 
and understand the nature of what it meant for life to exist on Earth where it appeared to exist nowhere else is incalculable in terms of its inspiration. Well, 40 years after that last footstep, there is a lot of interest in going back to the moon, beginning with robotic landers and potentially more footsteps on the lunar surface within the next decade or two. Space boffin Sue Nelson was in Berlin recently for the European Space Agency tweet-up, where she met planetary geologist Yuli Kohler from the German Aerospace Centre DLR. Sue's first question was not, when do we go back, though, but why? Because it's so close. The moon is really just two days away with a spacecraft, so different to Mars, which is much more distant. And of course, the moon can tell us a lot about the early times of the solar system and the Earth. It's one of the uh, most important places in the solar system to find out about the development of the planets, it's their evolution, and uh, solid bodies, how they formed, and it's also important to, to answer the question why Earth is such a good place for life. Probably the key is that the moon stabilized uh, the Earth, and also its tidal force uh, that's pulling at the Earth's ocean. This is very crucial for early life because early life originated in the in the tidal zones of the oceans. Do you think, though, the moon is being overshadowed at the moment because all the emphasis seems to be on Mars? This might be the case, yes, but uh, Mars is also very important because Mars is really the only place in the solar system where we think life is likely to discover. But uh, in the long term, I think we have to return to the moon not only for scientific reasons, it's also extremely good laboratory because you have a complete perfect uh, sterile zone and, and uh, a vacuum that can be used for experiments. The far side of the moon is wonderful for radio astronomy to look at the universe very earliest times, the Big Bang, because here on Earth you cannot do these observations anymore, not even from the low Earth orbit because there are so many waves cruising around, it's impossible. So I think in 20 years we will be back even with astronauts on the moon. You say 20 years, but it looks as though by then China and Russia, possibly even India, will already have have had astronauts on the moon. Is there a danger that Europe is sort of losing its edge here, is not gaining the momentum to go back to the moon? Well, what is correct is that these are very ambitious space nations, but uh, to be honest, they are still lacking behind Russia and the uh, United States and Europe in, in terms of high-tech uh, missions. So we have to see whether they will be able to land on the moon with a robotic mission. If they can do this, of course, they could do more. And uh, we will see whether they will do it in 10 years, as they, as they announced recently. But... Um, I think it's not possible like uh, what we have seen in the 60s when John F. Kennedy announced almost exactly 50 years ago that uh, we will fly to the moon until the end of the decade and return men safely. With today's safety approach, this is probably impossible. So I think also the Chinese and Indians, they will take a little bit more time than they announce at the moment. One of your colleagues has said that what Europe needs is a Kennedy. Who do you think is likely, out of all the European nations, to encourage space travel, return to the moon, at a time when Europe, most of Europe, is in an economic crisis? Well, my personal opinion is if we would have a Kennedy in Europe at the moment, we wouldn't have that the crisis we are running in at the moment so deep. But on the other hand, uh, the European Space Agency, Agency is doing a very cool business by analysing precisely what is possible, what is not possible, 
and uh, is, is making really prudent decisions uh, regarding the funding. And uh, so I think what you are right is that Europe should have a, a mission where there's some more imagination coming with it. We had Mars Express, we had Venus Express, and we will have Rosetta uh, uh, arriving at the comet in about two years now. So these are wonderful projects. So now it's time to do the next step. There's an idea, for instance, to have the ATV vehicle uh, included into the Orion spacecraft of NASA. This would be perfect because then we could be passengers with, or we could uh, fly with NASA to distant targets, maybe even to Mars someday, 20, 30, 40 years ago from now. Yuli Kola from the German Aerospace Center talking to Sue at the recent ESA tweet-up in Berlin. I mean, Lee, would you like to see a, a return to the moon? I would always like to see a great challenge placed in front of our nation and in front of our engineers and in front of the world community that, that has an interest in this. In 2004, uh, then-President Bush announced a new direction in space uh, for this country that involved the termination of the space shuttle program, but it was to be replaced by an Apollo-like capability that was going to be able to take us to the moon and beyond. The level of political support flagged, and the program that, that had been established to, in effect, redo Apollo uh, ended up being canceled by the current uh, president. Uh, the space policy now talks about capabilities rather than destinations. This is a very unsettling thing for an engineer who likes to have a goal in front of him saying, we're going to do this, and it's going to take this much time for you to do it, and it's going to cost this much money. And to tell that engineer, don't worry about any of those goals, simply develop some capabilities that we might later use, uh, is not the challenge that the engineer hopes for. You do raise an interesting point there, though, that it needs to be led from the top, that there needs to be a, a goal, a, a defining end point, in the same way that Kennedy set the goal of, of putting a man on the moon before the decade was out. Well, of course, the situation that existed in the, in the 1960s was probably unique, in that there was a full consensus from all political parties that said this is indeed something that we must do. The amount of resources that were made available to us was unlimited. So the challenge today is not so much whether we could go back to the moon or whether we could go to some other destination. The challenge is how do you garner all of the political support required to set that kind of a destination? And, you know, without leadership, those kinds of things are not, are, are never established. And if, if it happened, as people seem to think it, it will happen, there seems to be a, a, an edge of optimism there, certainly in the, in the interview we, we've just heard. Do you think it'd be an international project rather than a competitive project? I think it, it uh, very much would be an international collaboration of, of capabilities. And, the, you know, the best model for that is the current International Space Station, you know, which has all of the support of the Russian Space Agency, of ESA, of other nations around the, the Earth, all contributing in some way uh, to support that capability. Uh, it is difficult to do in terms of managing the, the international treaties that exist, the interfaces that exist between modules on a spacecraft and things like that, and yet all of those problems were overcome 
in the building and in the operating of the International Space Station. So I think that becomes the model of what could be done in the future. And so the question is not whether the United States has the political will to do this. The question is whether the world community has the political will uh, to do this and sees enough value to commit those kind of resources. Well, Lee, thank you very much for the moment. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You'll find us on Twitter and Facebook, where I'll also post some pictures from the recordings here in Houston. And in our December podcast, I'll be reporting from inside the original Apollo control room, plus how to train an astronaut. Now, the great thing about space exploration today is that you don't necessarily have to have a multi-billion dollar budget to take part. Around the world, enthusiasts, students and small academic groups are building their own rockets, satellites and rovers. And the big space agencies are keen to get involved to drive down the cost of spaceflight. We've previously featured Strand One in the podcast. This low-cost UK project uses a smartphone to run the satellite. But... It has competition. At NASA's Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley, California, they're putting the finishing touches to PhoneSat, which could be launched by the end of the year. I've been speaking to Bruce Yost, NASA's program manager for the Small Satellite Technology Program. PhoneSat is an attempt by NASA to understand and see what can be done with commercial-grade electronics in space. So one of the things we're interested in is to see how we could use very low-cost electronics, which are actually, there's been a lot of uh, research and investment made by other people, obviously the phone manufacturers. We want to see if we we can leverage that and use that investment and all that technology in the the space area, specifically the, the small space area. We're hopeful that, uh, that we can because just technically, if you look at a phone and a spacecraft, the phone has a lot of computing power and other peripheral devices that can be adapted and used, we think, to do space missions. The question is, can a phone actually work in space? Why a phone? I mean, is that just to get people's attention? Not really. Engineers uh, look at the phone, and, and they, there's kind of an a urban legend, if you will, that you can hold a phone up, almost any one of your smartphones, and claim that there's many multiples of processing and memory capability compared to what we did with Apollo, even, and, and what we're doing now with current satellites. Uh, there's a reason for that. In space, you want to have something very reliable. You want to make sure that the software doesn't crash, that the hardware is radiation tolerant because it's a little different environment in space than here on the ground. So uh, space has been very conservative in using things that have been proven that have worked, but they, they're a lot of times not as capable. The phone, however, has a lot of memory. It has very, very fast processors that can operate and do a lot of different things at once. The smartphones now are starting to have things like IMUs on them, uh, inertial uh, measurement units, that w- w- which the phone can tell uses to tell what, where down is when you're doing a game or when you flip your iPhone, it, it flips the screen. In space, we think we can use those to figure out where the spacecraft is. There are little wheels that uh, actually vibrate your phone when you have it on vibrate, uh, when you have it on silent. We can use those wheels as momentum uh, devices to actually turn the spacecraft in space. So there's a lot of stuff already there. And the other thing I should mention is that the ability to put software on these phones is is almost universal. A lot of people are writing applications. Uh, it's open source in some cases, at least in the phones that we're using. So there's a big potential to draw on software applications and, and migrate those to space. Uh, kind of like you see the sort, same sort of thing happening here in ground. So if this works, would the idea be to use this type of technology in commercial or scientific satellites? 
probably scientific satellites initially. Uh, so yes, it, the, the objective here is to is to make the investment where you get the most bang for the buck. And in the science world, that's in the science instrument or the payload. If the bus part of it, the, the part that does the housekeeping and the, and the accommodations and can be made very inexpensively but very reliable and very capable, well, now we can focus more of our attention and our resources in on the instrumentation side of it, which makes the science a lot more valuable. Now, you're not the only people who are working on a phone satellite. Uh, yours is called PhoneSat. There's also Strand One being developed by SSTL and University of Surrey in the UK. Is it something of a competition between you who can get it into space first? I, I don't know that it is. Maybe people could think of it as that, um, but I'm not sure if, if, our, if our goals are the same. We're looking just to see if this phone can actually survive and be used in other applications. Uh, would you be bothered if theirs got there first? Not necessarily. Um, this is all good. Small space is becoming kind of accessible to a larger number of, of people. And Surrey was one of the first, uh, first in the small set arena, by the way. It's kind of watching a revolution unfold where space is more accessible. It's not as expensive. More and more people are, are participating in it. And I think that's all good. Bruce Yost from NASA's PhoneSat team. Back to our series on Gemini now. The missions that made the moon landings possible. We're up to Gemini 5 and I'm standing underneath it here at the Space Centre, Houston, and it's tiny. It looks essentially like the front two seats of a car with a cone stuck on the front. There really is very little room for the astronauts inside. It's suspended on the ceiling above my head. With me still is Lee Norbraton, who's a volunteer here at the museum. I mean, we talked about Apollo earlier. This looks really small and primitive, this spacecraft. The Gemini missions that took place in 1965 and 1966, a a sequence of 10 missions that were all developing the kinds of capabilities that were ultimately going to be needed for Apollo. Without the challenge to go to the moon, there was no reason for the Gemini program at all. The primary thing that was developed in Gemini that was going to be needed for Apollo was the ability of two spacecraft to rendezvous. It sounds like a simple issue. But when you're dealing with the nature of orbital mechanics, uh, everything that you imagine to be true is kind of reversed. And if you see a spacecraft in front of you and you want to rendezvous with it, your natural inclination would be to speed up and catch up to it. If you speed up, you will fall farther behind. The reason being uh, well-steeped in Keplerian mechanics in that when you speed up, you put yourself into a higher orbit. The higher orbit has a longer period, and you actually fall behind this, the spacecraft. And so the development of the techniques and the development of all of the logic required to effect a rendezvous at all took several flights to accomplish. And, uh, and Gemini was the, was the proving ground for that kind of capability, as well as extravehicular activity and the continued development of the Uh, flight computers and the communication means and the navigation means that were ultimately going to be needed in Apollo. Now, the Gemini 5 mission, the the spacecraft, the actual spacecraft above above my head, that was Pete Conrad and Gordon Cooper. And it is incredibly cramped. They were in there for eight days. We're very good friends going into the flight. I think we came out of the flight uh, even closer friends. And... uh... It's a very small vehicle, and it's a togetherness in its truest sense there. (laughs) (laughs) 
particularly say, from the standpoint of their wives sitting out there, I think they'd be just terribly pleased they came out such good housekeepers after this experience. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a little more room than we than we imagine, and you can you know move around and you can stretch and you can and you can do. Uh, you know, your normal bodily functions uh, with at least a little bit of privacy. It's essentially, uh, though, it's essentially, though, like being stuck in a, an economy seat on an aircraft for eight days, yes, though, isn't or, it? Or a small telephone booth, uh, right. <laughs> well, Lee, thank you so much for being my, my guide here today at the Space Centre. Oh, uh, thank you. I enjoyed uh, having you, and, and uh, uh, we'll look forward to the, uh, to the podcasts and... and uh, and uh, all of the other things that you're doing uh, in support of spaceflight. It's very much appreciated. The Space Boffins podcast is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. You can reach us, of course, on Facebook and Twitter, and thanks very much for all your kind words about the Arthur C. Clarke Award. We are very proud. Let's finish with more from that last mission to the moon, Apollo 17, and Gene Cernan's final speech, I think more poignant and every bit as powerful as one small step. Thanks for listening. Bob, this is Gene, and I'm on the surface. And as I take man's last step from the surface, back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future, I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Littrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return with peace and in hope. For all mankind, Godspeed the crew of Apollo 17.